Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> this is where things get really interesting because one could argue, some have argued, that the best model for Christian masculinity is not John Wayne, not William Wallace, but maybe Jesus Christ. Um, but guess what? Jesus is also the model for Christian womanhood, too. If you think about it, that's all we've got, we women, right? We're following Christ, too. And then we have, you know, the Beatitudes. And we have love your neighbor as yourself. We have Jesus' command to love your enemies. We have the fruit of the Spirit. All of that for us all. It's for all of us, right? For men and for women. And so uh, if, if that's your starting point, then you can start to see where, you know, all of the layers that get added to, you know, gender difference, complementarianism, patriarchy, so much of that is really just cultural constructs, cultural additions that um, it's packaged and sold as biblical, but it really isn't. And, and that's really, I think, the, one of the key uh, arguments of this book. Um, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by my faithful host, Josh Bertram, uh, Pastor Josh Bertram, that is, um, and uh, we're, we're joined today by um, author, writer, professor um, Kristen Dumay. Um, she is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Um, she holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. Um, she's written for a whole lot of different um, organizations, but today we're actually going to be talking to her about Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation, um, which is 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 a tremendously awesome read, great book. It basically chronicles the rise of militant masculinity and evangelism. Evangelism, evangelical. I'm going to get that word right. Evangelicalism. Um, but <laughs> but, uh, but thank you, Kristen, for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So so um, uh, we'll, we'll get to your book in a second. But I'm I'm curious to to find out like like when you grew up. Did you always know you wanted to be like a female superhero in the Christian community? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> That's the first time I've been characterized as that. I don't know. I think I did always have a little bit of a rebellious streak, though. Uh, I think my parents would affirm that. But uh, no, I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I um, certainly didn't see myself as the hero in any story. I grew up in a small town in Iowa. Uh, you know, I think I always wanted to, to just... See the world. I wanted to. I wanted to see what was out there. So, so I did have this this adventurous side, and I um, I didn't really have have much in the way of aspirations beyond that. Just see what else was going on out there. Yeah, I, I mean, but 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 you're you're a professor, so like like yeah. it's how did how did your how did your life journey you know, landed you in, in the role that, that you're currently in today? Yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian subculture, Dutch reformed kind of ethnic enclave in, in Sioux Center, Iowa. And, uh, you know, I went to, um, actually a, a formative experience for me was, uh, I, I spent a year in Germany as an exchange student, my senior year in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, my family had moved to, to Florida for a couple of years while my dad got his PhD. And, uh, after that, I went off to Germany 
And I think it was that experience that really opened my eyes to, or made me curious about my own culture, right? About what it, you know, the cultural values of uh, Americans, American nationalism in particular, nationalism isn't, isn't quite so popular in Germany, right? And they, they were kind of putting me on the spot. What is it with you Americans and all your flag waving? And mm. you know, religion was different there. Religion looked different. And, and so I came back to the United States, I think, with just a lot of questions about my own culture, um, things that I hadn't been aware of before. I went to college um, in my small town, uh, Dort University, within my own tradition. My dad was a theology professor there, and um, I didn't know what I was doing with my life. I was pre-med and German major and history major, keeping my options open, <laughs> but but still trying to kind <laughs> of puzzle this, you know, what my own my own cultural upbringing. And so uh, senior year, I had to make some decisions. I was not dating anyone or engaged to anyone. So what does one do? I decided to go to graduate school and uh, <laughs> just keep learning. And I studied religious uh, and intellectual history, really trying to you know figure out what was the history that really mattered? What, what's the history that really makes a difference? And it was my first semester there that I was introduced to the study of gender in history. And immediately that week, the first book on uh, gender history that I read, I it it, it I changed my course of study, uh, added mm-hmm. the study of gender, uh, and really haven't looked back. So that that really set me on this path. Um, so deeply curious about uh, gender in history and interaction between uh, gender and faith. Wow, you know my so my my earlier comment um, about being a superhero um, is somewhat for the benefit of my wife, because you and her actually have a lot of um, like commonalities and just your life experience. My, my wife is a small town, Indiana girl um, raised Mennonite who lived in Germany for like three years, like right after high school um, huh. and, and was a German major, yeah. you know, speaks German, like, <laughs> like yeah. um, and um, you know, so, so like, I, I really do think that, that you're, your work, like the book you, you wrote, yeah. the, the books you've wrote, um, you know, have really kind of impressed upon a lot of um, young women and just they look at you and they, they think, hey, you know, like, here's a strong, like, smart, you know, woman that's that's making an impact in, in people's lives. And, and, um, you know, I just want to I just want to thank you for that. <laughs> so oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I, yeah, you know, I, I will say so I didn't it's it's a strange journey that has brought me to this point right because i'm 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 a historian i'm an academic historian i'm a college professor that's really what i do but i i have right. tried to write books that answer questions that i have uh but it is it is quite remarkable for me to be in this space to um to be to have the books speak so powerfully into this historical cultural and political moment so i'm still kind of uh, acclimating to that i think and mm-hmm. and understanding mm-hmm. you know this new identity where it's the book that's doing this but i realize it's also you know it's it's me too and i'm in a new space and and getting used to what that looks like so it makes sense yeah now now, now your so your book is called jesus and john wayne um and um, I, I know it's got a really great like subtitle. It takes like two breaths to say the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. Um, so like, you know, it's probably not a popular book for like asthmatic people to <laughs> like talk about, you know, like, um, and, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but I, I'm curious, like ha- having read the book, um, you know, I'm there, there, there seems to, there's plenty of white, men manly white men like on the globe that 
you could have chosen to make your point mm-hmm. um, in the book. So I, I'm curious yeah, on why. Yeah, like Josh, <laughs> Jesus and Josh Bertram, you know. Missed <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so why John Wayne? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, part of what I saw is, you know, I, I, I first came to this topic um, more than 15 years ago, and it was actually John Eldridge's Wild at Heart that first opened my eyes to uh, you know, popular conversations around Christian masculinity. And what really surprised me when I came across that book, uh, and it was my students who had first shown it to me uh, at Calvin, uh, that, you know, for all their talk of being Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals in their uh, fashioning this Christian manhood were not really drawing on scriptures all that much. Instead, they were looking to uh, Hollywood heroes uh, to uh, their favorite or, or Eldridge's favorite was um, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. He also liked just random cowboys and soldiers and General MacArthur and General Patton and and Teddy Roosevelt. Love Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, so so this was striking to me. And as I looked around and saw that there was, there was this vast literature on Christian masculinity and that pattern repeated itself. And John Wayne was a, a, a favorite too, you know, John Wayne. And what was intriguing is, you know, many of these men, not Christians, certainly not evangelicals, uh, not um, models of moral behavior. And yet it was these um, uh, kind of heroes who were used then as a blueprint for what they claimed was Christian manhood, Christian masculinity. And that ends up actually, you know, changing Christianity itself is, is one of the things that I argue. So I couldn't fit Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart into the, t- into the title. But I knew with a name <laughs> uh, like Kristen Cobus Dumay that uh, is impossible to pronounce and spell, I needed a really accessible handle. And so Jesus yes. and John Wayne, it was, and it actually works really well because it illustrates this, you know, borrowing from secular culture and bringing it into Christian spaces. And, and it brings this back into the history, right? The role that, that John Wayne played on screen and off in this kind of Cold War America and in, um, in the rise of the religious, right? In conservative politics generally. So it worked. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. I, um, <clears throat> you know, I never was a big fan of John Wayne, honestly. Um, but uh, William Wallace, you know, I <laughs> love William Wallace, you know, pretending like, you can take our lives, you know, but you're like yes. screaming about freedom and stuff like that. And, you know, I, so that's so interesting to me because I, I never got onto the, um, you know, you mentioned the book wild at heart and I never got onto the wild at heart train until I, I didn't read it for years after it came out, but then uh-huh. I did read it. And every single guy that I read it with, cause of course, like it's a, you know, guy's book, two guys. And it's like, and every guy has like a maiden that they're trying to save. And every maiden has is looking for a knight in shining armor, you know, this chivalry. And I guess, I don't know what men thought of before the middle ages, maybe it was just replacing it with something else. But, you know, when you're thinking about that, like, um, you know, when I read it to these guys, like they, they, uh, when we read it together, they just loved it. They ate it up, you know, and they, yeah. you know, and, and I guess one of my questions for you is in your research, you know, and, um, I, I am, I am into the book. I, I got it too late to finish it, but I'm reading it and I'm going to finish it. I promise you. Well, I'm listening to it actually, but I love the premise. The premise is extremely interesting to me. And, uh, what, what was it like, what is it about this masculinity that you think, what gave rise to this sense of like 
Christian men are emasculated and now we have to, especially white men or whatever the point, mm-hmm. like, and, and, and we have to try to get this masculinity back. Like, what did you find? Like, what happened there that you yeah. found in your research that created this vacuum that then got filled with these, uh, with these different ideas and concepts? Yeah, so I'm a historian, so I'm going to bring you back a few decades, right? And I, what I realized is, uh, you know, this this Cold War era was just really critical. And what we see happening in the the late 40s, the early 50s, is evangelicals um, already in the early 40s say, you know, we want to reassert ourselves in, in terms of um, influencing American culture. They felt somewhat marginalized after the fundamentalist modernist controversies, and they came together in the National Association of Evangelicals and had a plan. They wanted to reassert their influence through Christian publishing, through Christian magazines, through radio, and, um, and, and they felt that they had a special role to play. Uh, and particularly by the end of the forties, in light of the, the Cold War, uh, they, they knew that they, they had a role to play to protect Christian America, uh, because they perceived themselves to be the most faithful Christians. And they saw that Christian America was under threat and, uh, Communists were anti-God, they were anti-family, and they were anti-American. So all the things that evangelicals held dear. And so it was um, the role of evangelicals to kind of shore things up. And uh, the threat was a military one, and so you needed a strong military defense, uh, and you needed strong men to defend faith, family, and nation. Now, the thing is, at that time, it wasn't that unique. Evangelicals were aligned with many other Americans, especially white middle class Americans. This was Cold War consensus. This was the post war, you know, baby boom. Traditional family values were in, and um, all that changed in the 1960s. In the 1960s, you have the civil rights movement, incredibly disruptive, particularly to Southern white evangelicals. You have the feminist movement starting up, right, challenging uh, traditional uh, gender roles. And you have the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement challenging American goodness and greatness. And all of these things um, lead many Americans to, to question these, these kind of traditional values. And that's when evangelicals really double down on all of these things. And they understand how they're connected. You need strong men. Gender difference becomes hugely important during this time. Like femininity and masculinity are opposites. Men and women are different in every cell of their bodies. And it's up to to men, to be strong, to be ruthless, to be aggressive. And God made them that way, filled with them with testosterone so that they can defend faith, family, and nation. But the feminists are coming after them and the anti-war activists. And, you know, we can talk race too. And what the solution to kind of all of these uh, these uh, kind of intrusions to the, uh, and disruptions to the status quo is the assertion of white patriarchal authority. And that really moves to the center of conservative evidence evangelical identity, and it is an oppositional identity by the 1970s, right? The sense of, we are the faithful remnant here. Too many other Americans are abandoning these values, and we have this special role to play to protect and defend these core values. And uh, and by asserting and defending white patriarchal authority, that's how it's done. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith in public life, social justice, 
and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Wow. Um, so, um, there's a lot there and, and like the more you talk, the more I'm just absorbing because it's, it's almost like, like, I don't know who the lady is that's doing the audio book, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but like, I've heard you speak before and like, I I had wished that you were the one reading it. I've heard that from a lot of people. It was not, (laughs) I would have loved to audition because authors have to audition. Um, But the way it it worked in this case is the rights were sold uh, and they, they, I was not, I was out of the loop entirely. Next time I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to uh, argue for that. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I have a Midwestern accent. I don't know that I can, I can hack it. But I at least want to give it a shot. Yeah. No, no. Like it's, it's either like you would be my first pick. My second would probably be like John Boehner, you know, because <laughs> there would be just something so, so poetic about like, like this, you know, white guy in <laughs> his sort of like voice with like a. Uh, I, I hope you could deliver some of these lines. You know, my my, my concern was, yeah, you know, I I hope that they're picking up on there. There's a little bit of snark here and there, and uh, yeah, that that's yes. important that that gets conveyed. Yeah. So so uh, in 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 your in your book, I I, I really was fascinated by uh, sort of the lionization of of Oliver North, and mm-hmm. and uh, there there was a line that you had um, put in there from. Um, I believe it was Falwell, um, basically saying, you know, we this is in, in regards to you know Oliver North and everything that he went through, got convicted and whatnot. You know, um, Falwell says, you know, we serve a savior who was indicted and convicted and crucified. Yes. Um, and when I read that, like I, I underlined it, scored it, like highlighted it, you know, because I like truth be told, I actually I bought the the actual like Kindle version mm-hmm. and the audio version. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> because like, because sometimes I'm in different places where I can't listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and um, so when I when I when I read that, I was just thinking like, that's a line that could probably be applied to Trump today mm-hmm. because like like a lot of people have sort of deified Trump, um, in a lot of really unhealthy ways, I believe. Um, and and I'm curious, just as a as a as a person of history, mm-hmm. like, is the is the deification of Trump similar to, you know, the Israelites wanting a king or the Jewish people wanting, you know, Barabbas, you know, versus Jesus? Like, I, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a theological as much as a historical question. But, yeah, you know, it, it does. Ultimately, I think this is a book about power. It's a book about the relationship of, of, of the Christian faith to more worldly power. Uh, and, and in that sense, I think you can get biblical there, that there's a, a longstanding tendency for uh, you know, the people of God, if you will, to, uh, to grasp at, um, at worldly power and to try to take care of things for themselves, to not follow the pretty radical way of Christ as I read the Gospels, which is uh, really turning that on its head. You know, Jesus was not the Messiah that 
uh, th- that his followers thought he ought to be, that they were expecting. He was a suffering servant. He divested himself of power and he called on his followers to do the same. And that is hard. It goes against human nature. At least I'm a Calvinist, mm-hmm. so I can say it goes against human nature. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, yeah, ultimately that is, um, that is what we're looking at here. I think it's it's a question of power and what is the relationship between uh, Christianity and power. Yeah, I mean that's. Um, I really, uh, when I think about the idea of Christianity and power, um, you know, we have a we have a macrocosm right out in the world of what uh, like uh, of the government and. And the state versus the people and those kinds of concepts that if I'm bringing it down to the home, if we're thinking about power within the home, you know, it comes to parenting, right? Mm-hmm. And parenting with a, with a mother and a father in the classical traditional sense of parenting. I know that there are other forms now. Um, but if we're focusing on that, especially in this evangelical con- context, um, there's this concept called complementarianism that you, um, I, you know, you bring out, and I'm sure that um, I can guess about what side that you would probably fall on that. Um, but I wanted to give you a, a, like a chance to kind of say what is complementarianism, complementarianism, and then what's the opposite side of that? Like, um, mm-hmm. like if we're not complementarian, then what are we? Mm-hmm. And why is that important in this in this discussion about power in the church and how we live out of our like live out our lives as as um, for those who are Christians as Christians here in America? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> complementarianism. Uh, I trace the, the, the kind of the emergence of complementarianism in the book in uh, the 1980s, 1990s, and you know we're in full swing still today, and it's the topic of a lot of uh, contemporary debates. Uh, and the thing about complementarianism is, is you can you can give a very technical definition. Or you can talk uh, about what it actually looks like and how people are using the term at, at a popular level. Um, you know, even an organization like uh, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood will have a, a kind of official definition in terms of, you know, uh, gender difference. Very important there. Men and women have different roles, and uh, you know, they will stress that they are equal before God, but very distinct roles and the roles of leadership are assigned to men, and you know, in 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 the family and in church, and then it's kind of open to be for debate in wider society. Um, but then what you can see is even in the the uh, journal of this of CBMW and certainly in, in kind of popular usage, there is a lot that gets layered on top of that. So kind of in, in the most narrow sense, uh, kind of, um, you know, establishing a certain sense of patriarchal authority, um, although even the term patriarchy is is contested, some, some complementarians own that and like, you know, Dang right, this is patriarchal, and let's 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 be clear about that. And and then others like, no, that's not. You know, it's not about power; it's about roles. And yes, you know, yes, some roles come with leadership responsibilities, and other do- others don't. All which is to say, it's 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 um, historically right. As a historian, I um, I embrace that complexity, and I think that's important. So um, 
So what what I do in this book is I show how you know you can you can certainly find a long tradition of Christian patriarchy if you're looking for it and you can find bible verses that will um, appear to establish that. You can also find in Christian history and in the bible sources that and and, and this this long tradition of disrupting um, hierarchical power relations, right? So where I land is actually less significant for understanding this book, although I'm happy to go there. Um, my whole first book is on the history of Christian feminism, but um, where I where I land in 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 terms of this book or, or or how I how I frame this book is it's really important to know that both are active, like, right? Both uh, understanding patriarchy and understanding that the core of Christianity is disrupting patriarchy are part of Christian tradition, and both are part of evangelicalism, and both are a part have a long history in terms of. American evangelicalism, right? So for me as a historian, understanding that both options are available to quote unquote Bible believing Orthodox conservative Protestants is a starting point. Then that leads me to ask, why in this particular moment? Why in the 1940s? Why in the 1960s and the 1970s? Why did the assertion of patriarchal authority um, moved to the center in the way it did. What went along with that? How was race connected to it? How was it intertwined with Christian nationalism and American militarism? That's really the story that I'm telling. And so how does then so much more get added onto what is actually biblical? Wherever you land, whether you where you, whether you think that the Bible is is saying that men should have some, some um, distinct leadership roles, women should have some different roles, why this, you know, modern complementarianism, which actually adds a ton of layers on top of ideals of what does it mean to be a Christian woman? It means to be very submissive and sweet and feminine and sexually alluring. And, um, you know, you can just add, add, add and not work outside of the home and not, you know, all these things that, that are not biblically based. What does it mean to be a, a Christian man? This is where things get really interesting because one could argue, some have argued, that the best model for Christian masculinity is not John Wayne, not William Wallace, but maybe Jesus Christ. Um, but guess what? Jesus is also the model for Christian womanhood, too. If you think about it, that's all we've got, we women, right? We're following Christ, too. And then we have, you know, the Beatitudes, and we have love your neighbor as yourself. We have Jesus' command to love your enemies. We have the fruit of the Spirit all of that for us all, it's for all of us, right? For men and for women. And so uh, if, if that's your starting point, then you can start to see where, you know, all of the layers that get added to, you know, gender difference, complementarianism, patriarchy, so much of that is really just cultural constructs, cultural additions that um, it's packaged and sold as biblical, but it really isn't. And and that's really, I think, the one of the key uh, arguments of this book. Uh, um, so uh, in that same vein, um, I'm, I'm curious on like how you, how you think this discussion would be different, um, broadly speaking, kind of in America, if Hillary Clinton had won, you know, in 2016, because I, I know like, you know, being, being, a, a person of color when Obama was, was president, I have a lot of people who are like, yeah, you know, he's just sowing racial divide into this country and so on and so forth. And, you know, you could read like a, um, a, a book I keep promoting that I that I recommend anybody to read. It's called Why We're po- Polarized by Ezra Klein. And he talks about sort of like, you know, the when the majority feels threatened, basically 
you know, people kind of start acting in ways that aren't good, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, like with, with complementarianism, like if there was a woman president, like how would that affect the whole equation? Yeah. It wouldn't go over very well in evangelical circles, (laughs) I can say with some confidence. Uh, You know, I was actually researching a book on uh, Hillary Clinton and her faith formation back in in 2015, 2016. And I had to set that aside to quick write Jesus and John Wayne when I saw like, (laughs) wait a minute, I actually have... uh, I have some research here that uh, that I think is a little more urgent, so I, I swapped the order. Um, but uh, no, I th- and, and what I can say is, from my research on Jesus and John Wayne, it's clear that um, up until these last four years, uh, uh, conservative evangelicals have tended to become much more radicalized when there is not a Republican in the White House. So uh, that history would suggest that had Hillary Clinton won, we would have seen pretty remarkable, I, I think, given the long history of um, really Hillary hatred in conservative white evangelical circles, um, that uh, that would have been extremely triggering, um, particularly on the heels of the Obama administration, where we, ha- we bring race into the mix. Also, the sea change on LGBTQ, you know, perceived threats to religious liberty, all of that would have, I mean, that's what what brought us to Trump, had Hillary squeaked out a victory, I, I would imagine that those forces would have um, been empowered in many ways um, and, and that we would have seen a very rough uh, four years for Hillary Clinton because she would have been facing the same opposition that Barack Obama did, if not even more intense. Now, what's really strange, um, historically speaking, is how Donald Trump and his presidency kind of changed this equation. Because you can look back for decades and see this pattern, right? You know, during Ronald Reagan's presidency, that that was not a great time for the um, organizations of the religious right. Their donations declined. It was hard to raise money because, hey, one of our guys is in the White House, right? <laughs> when the Clintons move in, that's when the fundraising was happening again. That's when the organizations are. And then same thing, you know, with George W. Bush, also not not a great time. By the end of his his two terms, the, the religious right, I mean, people were pronouncing the death of the religious right. And then Obama came and, whoa, back again, you know? But what, <laughs> what Trump did that was so distinct was he was able to both hold that office and grant conservative evangelicals special privileges and power and stoke their fears of marginalization all at the same time. And that's really, that was his brilliance. And uh, and so I don't know how that changes what happens next, right? Because that, that pattern was pretty clear. Now uh, Trump kind of messed, messed that pattern. And I'm not sure what territory we're in right now and what to say, you know, what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean... I, I I saw that. Um, it's so funny that you just um, mentioned that pattern because you did kind of feel that way. It's like, you know, it's like when your team, well, I, well let me put it this way. Like I remember listening to this, uh, this lecture that talked about Supreme Court justices and this study that was done of their, of their arguments. Um, and, um, you know, the, when they would write their opinions on the different, uh, rulings. And they said that the people, the justices that were in the minority party would always write better, like more like, um, 
yeah, just more persuasively, um, you know, just everything, like there's more evidence cited, what all these different metrics. Um, and, and because it just kind of shows you like when the side that's losing, if you're losing, you have to work, you feel like you're losing, you have to work harder. And so if you can get people to feel like they're losing, then that creates this fire within them. And we've seen the evangelical community do that at several different times. I just finished the book and we actually interviewed um, the author Reagan land. Um, and yeah, it was, it, it was a tome. It was a huge book, yes. and it, but it was really, really fascinating when it, talking about this issue of the religious right and how it became, it became um, electrified and, you know, it, it, it got motivated and moved in the wake of, you know, um, you know, during Jimmy Carter's presidency. And I'm thinking from your perspective and the things that you have researched, what is it about the evangelicals or even maybe religious people in general? What is it about them that makes it so they can become so organized in America and so good at pushing for legislation or being heard or anything like what, what is it do you think about our current situation or the culture of evangelicalism in America that creates that that structure that can then um, push for change yeah I mean, I think th I think there's just something to the fact that a, a common enemy is a unifying force, right? Whether you're evangelical or not, you can set aside your differences if you have this this battle to fight, right? So whatever differences we have, it's not as great as the difference we have or this threat that's that's looming. And so it, it is just a unifying uh, factor. That said, I, I will also say that looking at this um, longer history of conservative evangelicalism. I, I did have an aha moment at a, a certain point in this research because I kind of went into this project assuming that, uh, you know, yes, I knew that militancy was a thing and I knew that fear was a thing in evangelical circles. And that was very clear in the the rhetoric around uh, Trump's election in 2016. And the, the kind of popular narrative was uh, that, you know, evangelicals were kind of um, pushed into the arms of Donald Trump because they were so afraid, right? You know, because of the Obama administration, because of declining demographics, the end of white Christian America, threats to religious liberty, all of this, you know, what choice did they have um, but to kind of lash out and, and fight back? What I realized through this research is in many cases, we really needed to flip the script, uh, that it wasn't uh, fear that led to militancy, but in many cases, the militancy came first. And then powerful leaders actively stoked fear in the hearts of their followers in order to consolidate their own power. And we see that quite clearly in the case of uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. and Thomas Road Baptist Church, right? Francis Fitzgerald, as a journalist decades ago, was kind of embedded and in, 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 in presented that very clearly. Uh, we see that even more clearly in the case of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church, that pattern, right, where he, he uh, uses the rhetoric of warfare. He has... Uh, uh, you know, when he's when he preaches, he's flanked by security guards, you know, giving this 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 impression that people are out to kill him. And uh, and so because of that, he can demand and he does demand absolute loyalty because this is war. Right. Anything short of that is treason. Absolute loyalty on the part of his followers and extreme sacrifice. That's how this works. And then I saw that most clearly in this uh, th this chapter that I write 
maybe the strangest chapter in the book on the fake ex-Muslim terrorists, right? And this is the years after 9-11 when you have these ex, uh, or supposed um, former Muslim terrorists who convert to Christianity, to evangelical Christianity, and then become evangelists like who, who travel the evangelical speaking circuit telling evangelicals about how hateful and dangerous Muslims are and that they're out to kill them, especially evangelicals and their children. And, um, Okay, that's that's one thing. It turns out all all these guys are frauds, right? Their stories are are fake. They're not uh, former Muslim terrorists. And um, what's more is that their sponsors, right? Organizations like Focus on the Family, the SBC, CBN, continued to promote them even though they knew they were frauds. Right. And that to me was really this aha moment. I was like, wait a minute. Right. So I know that many conservative evangelicals are deeply afraid of radical Islam. I knew at the time I was watching it happen. I was listening to their voices. And I mean, I had one um, middle aged uh, evangelical woman like say to me, but don't you know? Don't you know how dangerous they are? And she was reading these books, right? She had the insider knowledge. Um, but what I understood was, right, this was, the fear was real in the hearts of, of, of people like this woman, but it was manufactured. It was manufactured by powerful, in this case, men, uh, mostly men, right? Powerful leaders who are doing so in order to consolidate their own power, to further consolidate their own power. Once I understood that, um, a lot of pieces fell into place. And so I would say, you know, this whole idea of fear and militancy, uh, we need to take a very careful look at that. Mm. So, so with, with your, with your book, um, it's interesting, like, I was I was having a conversation with my wife recently um and was saying you know how how your book is kind of structured is kind of written you know from and and correct me if I'm wrong like like a feminist sort of like viewpoint you know and um you know is very critical about sort of like the 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 church's definition of a manly man you know he goes to work woman stays at home you know and uh and I was like telling her it's like you know like, so, so my, my wife is actually a stay at home mom. She's great. I love her to death. You know, she does an, an excellent job, but it was almost like, I kind of felt like, kind of like that, that white guilt. I know Josh feels when he watches like, you know, 12 years of slave or something, you know, like, <laughs> like, I'm so sorry, Will, you know, <laughs> like, it's okay. I know it's not your fault, you know, <laughs> like, you know, and, and, uh, so I remember like just asking my wife, like, you know, like you, you do feel equipped to, to work, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not suppressing you you yeah. know and yeah i'm always like yeah yeah of course you know it's just like you know your, your job pays better you know <laughs> so <laughs> so um so i'm 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 curious on you know like what what does a person do when they read your book and like how how should they respond to the world um you know in a way that's meaningful constructive mm-hmm. um and and hopefully you know can bring about change Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of all, I'm a fan of stay-at-home wives and stay-at-home husbands, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So there's nothing in an individual situation. I, you know, I'm not going to come in and you know pull your wife aside and say, "Hey, you really need to go get a job," uh, <laughs> right? I'm actually a big fan of part-time work too, so that both parents can be <laughs> more involved. So we can we can talk about different economic models that we could work towards. But uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, but but the you know the point is, it's when you start saying that this is the God-ordained role. 
you know, that um, and interpreting, you know, the scriptures and applying to our own moment in post-industrial America and trying to say that, you know, this is what this means, that women should not have a have paid employment outside of the home when, you know, that just makes, I mean, it makes no sense even in, you know, 17th century U.S. categories, let alone, you know, going back to biblical times. So again, historian here, we, we need to, we need to historicize some of this and contextualize some of this. Um, and so when you're saying that, you know, this particular moment um, and, you know, this particular patriarchal arrangement and free market capitalism is God's, you know, command. And the only way to be a faithful Christian is to um, pattern your lives after that. That's, uh, that's where I'll raise an objection, right? In any individual situation, then you can, you know, it's, it's certainly worth asking, how were your ideals formed? Um, how did you come to make these choices? You know, absolutely checking in with your wife. Are you cool with this? Good idea. Um, and, you know, you might even ask, well, why, why, why do you make more money? You know, there, there are probably some, um, some more systemic factors that might uh, come to play. Maybe not, you know, all these, these, these questions are just good to, to keep in mind, to ask ourselves regularly, and to understand that the choices that we make are always constrained by our our, our context, economic context, cultural context, historical context, all of that is great. So it's really just bringing more complexity um, to our, our individual situations. And I think that often brings in more humility. We're less likely to tell other people what they ought to be doing uh, if we understand just, you know, how our own decisions are also contextualized. Um, but what should people do with this book? Um, it's kind of funny because as a historian, as a writer, I didn't give a whole lot of thought to that, right? I just really <laughs> wanted to get the story right. Yeah, I, I just wanted to tell this story. I didn't think that this book, I think very early on when I started this project, um, I think early on, I thought I, I, could, I could change something here, right? I, I, you know, kind of activist. And just months into the research, as I am not changing anything because I, I just was overwhelmed with how deeply embedded all of this is, right? That the, and I realized like, uh-uh, this is not going to change. So I kind of shifted, like, I'm, I'm going to testify. Right? I'm just going to hold this up. I'm going to tell the story as accurately and powerfully as I can. And there you have it. That's it, right? And what what what's done with it, I have no idea, but I'm just putting it out there. That's all I can do. And so honestly, I've been surprised. I've been surprised by the response to this book that it does seem to be... Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's creating change, catalyzing a conversation that that was you know, very much ready to happen was happening. Um, but I've been I've been surprised at how powerful the book is uh, in the hands of evangelicals themselves. Right? I've I've heard from so many who are who who respond to this book in deeply emotional ways. Um, like you know, people will will describe lying in the fetal position. And crying after reading this book, um, hmm. um, I've had ministry leaders, evangelical leaders, tell me that they have um, felt almost suicidal, realizing that thirty, thirty-five years of their ministry has been going to this and not where they thought it was going. That they were fully complicit in this, and they only now see. Um, you know, I have—I've just heard so many stories of how brutal is to read this history and yet how necessary it is. And so, so there's just so much emotion running through the messages, the letters that I'm receiving every single day, every wow. day, like multiple letters. And, and so I've reflected on that. You know, I just, just wrote a piece in the, in the times uh, uh, trying to come to terms with this and realizing that 
I think this reaction is coming from the fact that evangelicals have remained largely oblivious to their own history and all of its complexities, right? They tell a certain story. It is a whitewashed story. It's one in which they are the heroes. We all do that to a certain degree, but evangelicals have this infrastructure like this, this, you know, popular culture. They've got their their media empires and stuff, so they can inhabit their own stories more fully than many other people do. And I think just seeing this history spelled out with quotes, with footnotes, right? You know, right yeah. in front of them, they can realize, ah, this this is my story. I just didn't realize that it was. And, and many are not okay with that, right? And so what comes next I'm just the historian here, um, but I th- I think that for many, it's, uh, you know, I'm asked this question a lot, and one of the first things I say is, um, I don't even have to tell people, they're already examining their own complicity in, in pretty remarkable mm. ways, right? It's not just like realizing I didn't know. The very next question is, how didn't I know, right? What And, and how was I okay? How was I so mm. comfortable in these spaces? Wow. Um, and, and then, and then, you know, the next step is really um, examining, you know, who was excluded from your spaces, who, what harm was done, how do you make amends, and um, you know, and, and where do you go next? And maybe that's leaving white evangelical spaces, maybe that's working inside white evangelical spaces, um, but it certainly involves listening very closely to people outside of those spaces. Yeah, I think that's really beautifully said. I, um, you know, it's very compelling, um, you know, to have essentially, it's almost like a mirror held up and, you know, against something that you've grown up with and you've known and feel so familiar. And then to have like, all of a sudden, like, um, you know, you start to see things as more complicated than you thought they were and how, difficult that can be for us you know it's like when you find out like it's like when you find out like that you're you know that your mom and like your 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 like uh your grandparents like didn't get along and had drama you know what i mean like when you're a kid you know like everything was cool and then you grow up and like oh no she said this this and then you're like oh my gosh like you guys are human like what's going on here like how could you do this to me you know, it's almost like that, that sense of shock. And, you know, when you talk about Mark Driscoll, that particularly hits me because he, you know, really helped me personally through a time that like I needed it. Um, and I was hit hard when like he had to step down from Mars Hill and everything. And, and he almost, he had this like appeal to dudes, like to men that was like, you just need to go out there, quit being a, you know, uh, whatever I can't say on air or whatever, and just go and, and, and do something with your life. And like, at the time I really needed that, you know, I'm like, yeah, uh-huh. you're right. Like, uh-huh. dude, I'm just being lazy. I need to go do something with my life and, and all this stuff. But, you know, when, when I'm listening, I didn't listen to him critically. Um, and I guess my question is, you know, when you, you're coming from the point of view of a historian and you got to bring the theology into this uh-huh. for us to 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 have application here. Like, what kind of principles do you think that I should use, or maybe should have used when I ten years ago or fifteen years ago, to understand? Like, hey, here's what you know. Here's the historical realities. 
And now how can I contextualize this to my situation? So here's what Paul wrote in this letter to the Corinthian church. And here's what he wrote uh, to this letter to Timothy. And now, but here, like, like what kind of principles should we bring in mind to know, like, there is a history there. And just because it's said there doesn't mean it's the same thing as here now. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, how do you bring it from there to here as a historian? Like mm-hmm. its significance from what Paul said to what we're doing now to help us become more educated and critical in a good way about, about the ty- kind of things that we consume, especially things that hit us so deeply Mm-hmm. And and hit us at such a a key place in our heart. They're so compelling to us. Mm-hmm. Does that question I mean, one, make sense? Yeah, no, it's 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 a very rich question. I think that one, you know, one thing I would say is that we need to have um, more conversations between theologians and historians here. Uh, right, because you know, theologians are, or or just ordinary Bible readers, right, are are going to you know look to take what is the lesson from Paul and then apply it here and now, which, you know, of course, that's, that's kind of part of, you know, discerning faithful uh, Christian living. Uh, But then when the historians come in, they can say, huh, interesting question. Here's how uh, people in the first century answered that question. Here's how people in the 13th century answered that question. Here's how, you know, people uh, in, um, uh, you know, contemporary Uganda are answering that question. Here's how, and then, and, and it doesn't entirely relativize, right? We're still all seeking biblical truth and seeking to live, but it does give us a humility in terms of thinking, aha, this is the one and only answer and we've got Mm. it because history will disrupt that. It will absolutely disrupt that. So so bringing historians and theologians into more active conversation is important. I don't see this book as, you know, doing much theology. There's a little bit of a theological um, you know, framing here. Um, in that, you know, like I said, my understanding of the gospel and of the Jesus of the gospels does not align with Mark Driscoll's understanding. And so that gives me a kind of critical framing, but you don't have to, you don't have to believe that Christianity is true to read this book. I mean, it has the stamp of approval of a, you know, a bunch of atheists and revolutionary communists. And right, I mean, it's a work of history, right? But I am upfront about this. You know, I, I make my own kind of faith position clear. And I, you can see that there's a bit of a, a um, a theological um, framing of it. Of uh, let's take a look at this, and let me just speak to evangelicals on their own terms, just just for a moment, right? This Bible believing, um, you know, faith community. But um, so so bring theologians and, co- and historians into conversation. Super important. What I can do is help theologians do their work better. I think right that historians can come alongside, complicate things, and now okay, now do your theology understanding. Uh, these complexities. What I would also say is, again, very important to uh, to listen to people who have different experiences than you do. And so what could you have done differently? Um, you know, maybe uh, I, I talk in the conclusion to this book about how people have walked away from this ideology. Like what what has really, you know, kind of freed them from the grip of people who are all in for Mark Driscoll? Uh, you know, who who listened to hours on end of John Piper every day and uh, and Driscoll. And uh, and for many, it was um, 
encountering somebody from the outside, right? Encountering um, an egalitarian couple who were so clearly faithful Christians, right? And like, wait a minute, that's not supposed to exist in the world that they were were formed in. Um, you know, complementarianism was the only faithful way to be a Christian. Or you know, men talk about being in these sex segregated Bible studies, right? That like that's what evangelicals do. That's what college guys do. That's what, you know, these spaces, these wild at heart retreats, all that. So much just, you know, men over here, the ladies over here. And what happens when you bring them together? Many will hear, wow, that's some spiritual insight from the ladies. You know, that they and and it's actually sometimes a different um uh sort of insight. So when I read Wild at Heart, you know, I wasn't called to this militant. I wasn't called to this great adventure. I was told I needed to be vulnerable, to be a seductress, essentially, to seduce a man, to share in his adventure. That wasn't really my thing, uh, right? And so there was no place for me there. So I could have told you like, uh, kind of not cool here. Um, same thing with Mark Driscoll, right? <laughs> you could maybe gloss over some of the stuff he was talking about in terms of sex, in terms of women and submission and all of that, because you were latching onto the part that had meaning for you. But there are a lot of women who could say, Ooh, uh, I'm not so cool with this. This is kind of problematic here. Right. And we're just talking gender here. We can, we can bring race into this conversation as well. And, you know, how many white Christians have, um, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, created, uh, segregated, uh, spaces in their churches, in their organizations, in their communities, simply not hearing the voices of those who are different. And so history can do that for you, but you don't have to study history. You can also just talk to people who are having different experiences, who are also seeking to follow Christ and they will help you. You know, they'll help. We, we help each other in this, like, actually, no, there's a problem there. And we need to not just act out of our own experience. And, and I mean, this makes sense biblically if we think in terms of the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, so, Kristen, uh, last question, just on the last um, just few minutes we have here with you. Um, um, I'm curious. Our audience is very diverse. We have Republicans, Democrats, atheists, believers, Muslims. You, you, you name it. That, that is one of the beauty of of just combining religion and politics, and having a conservative Trump voting person, Josh, um, and sort of a liberal progressive me. Um, you know, like yes. have a podcast together. So. Um, I'm curious on like what what do non-Christians or believers get wrong about people of faith? And second is um like if you could make an appeal to someone listening that doesn't know Jesus, like what would you tell them? <laughs> okay, these are, you got two minutes. These are different <laughs> questions that I've had before. Okay, so let's see. Uh question number one, what do people get wrong? Um oh it, it depends which people it really does. You know, like they're I I guess um uh, you know, just to remember that there, that every, every person and every religious believer is, is complicated, right? And, and when we, when we talk about them, when we write about them, you, you have to, you have to make some generalizations. You have to talk about, you know, kind of, kind of movements and, um, traditions and teachings, and you have to work with survey data. And, and at the same time, when you know people personally, it's always complicated, right? And, and they can absolutely be shaped by, you know, these the ideologies that I describe. And, but they're also really complicated. And even people who hold, 
hold views that, uh, you know, one might find abhorrent. Uh, and this, you know, works both ways across this divide. Uh, <laughs> often, you know, they can be uh, quite lovely people as well. And, uh, you know, for those of us who move in between these spaces, we know that. Um, for for those, um, which doesn't mean that I should say that the political uh, isn't important, right? It, it is. And it's not just a kind of ideology. It's not just abstract. It shapes the way people live. It shapes the way they vote. And, and it shapes the policies that are made that have very, very real effects on people's lives and have more dire effects on some people's lives than on others. So, I mean, pol- I'm, I, I do politics, right, for a living. I think it's very important. And at the same time, there's a personal uh, uh, dynamic here as well. And we have to somehow hold those together and kind of fight the fight <laughs> as we see it. And also, you know, uh, be in community with people in this democracy who are very different from us, um, sometimes in our churches who are very different from us, in our workplaces, and often in our own families too. So I guess that's mm-hmm. the one thing that wasn't really one thing, but I'll say it was. Um, and then, oh, wait, you have to rephrase the, if, you have to you you can, give me the second one again. Yeah. If you can make an appeal to someone listening that doesn't know Jesus, what would you tell oh, them? I, I, you're, you're, you're turning me into an evangelical here. I have to evangelize. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, oh, you know, I would say, so for me as a, a Christian, I, um, only somewhat shaped by evangelicalism. So I, I've never been the kind of, you know, handing out tracts kind of uh, mm-hmm. need to evangelize. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I prefer more to kind of try to live my faith. And my faith is more about what I place my hope in. Mm-hmm. And in, in that way, it is not entirely independent of, but but largely independent of how people who claim to follow that Christ actually behave. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. um, you know, I, um, I am, a lot of people ask me, how are you able to remain a Christian given what you know and what <laughs> you've written? And, you know, for me, I've just, uh, in my, my own tradition, I, again, I'm, I'm a Calvinist, which has a pretty robust understanding of, of fallenness and human sin and all of that. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm cool with it. I, I expect no less of, of all of us, but, you know, my faith does not ultimately depend on, the actions of people who claim to believe um, or, yeah, claim to uh, follow Christ. What I would also say is that um, to to keep in mind that, I don't know, Christians tend to talk in universal categories, right? And to, to imagine ourselves as one community. And, you know, you confess Christ, you're a Christian. And, and there are absolutely theological reasons for saying that. As a historian, I am just drawn to the particulars. And so I, I, I have to ask, you know, is this, are people who, who claim to be Christians, are they really participating in the same faith, right? Are they following the same Christ? Because boy, scratch beneath the surface. And there are some really, really huge differences. So I guess that yeah. would be another space where I, I'm kind of, thinking ultimately just because we use the same words um is this this is this actually our, our is this the same faith that we're talking about so i would i would say you know allowing for some of those questions to surface as from outside to trying to understand what is christianity what does it mean to be christian um i i i tend to see a lot of um particularities a lot of, of difference there and not a whole lot of unity frankly wow well um Thank you for that um, answer. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate having you, yes, Kristen Dumay. Uh, the book is Jesus and John Wayne and Deep Breath. 
how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Um, so make sure you guys go out and buy it. There's also um, a uh, like a, it's going in paperback now too, right? So it is. It is June 8th. The paperback releases, and we have a new preface, which brings it all the way up through 2020. Great. Yeah. So so make sure you guys buy the book, buy the audio version, and uh, yeah, thank you so much, Kristen. Oh, thank, thank you. you. This is great. Yeah, we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye.